So we've been looking at uh, uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth, uh, this uh, Advent, and today we're up to uh, Ruth chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, which is basically a conversation between uh, Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law. Text is printed uh, in, the bullet- in the bulletin and up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she, with, with whom she had worked and said, the, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So there's a lot of stuff about Christmas that's mysterious. A lot of gaps in the story, probably, as you've read it, as you've thought about it, that you'd like to see filled in, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen there. You know, one of the, one of the things that is uh, uh, so interesting to me is, so you see, uh, like, nativity scenes, crushes, and that sort of stuff, and there's the shepherds and random animals and uh, Joseph and Mary, an angel flying over, a star, and then there's the wise men, which... Um, is funny because the wise men and the shepherds weren't there at the same time. In fact, they might have been years apart. But, you know, in this day and age of technology and storytelling, we like to, you know, nothing's linear anymore, right? So uh, we can, maybe, maybe it could work that way that, you know, in somebody's mind anyway, that all happened. So when our kids were little, we would set up the manger scene and we'd take the... Uh, Wise men and put them in another room because <laughs> they're not on the scene yet. They're, you know, hey, seminary ruins you for stuff like that, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the things I've always thought about is so and we've sung about it this morning. You know, think, think about it. There are shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around about them. And they were sore afraid. And suddenly there was with the angel a heavenly host praising God and saying. Now, the last time I had an angel visit me and a heavenly choir come sing to me, it was life altering. How about you? Right. Did it change things for you? Did did the last time that happened? You're like, wow, wow, life's different. But you know what? The mysterious thing to me about that is, so what do you do after that? They see the angel. They get terrified. They jump up. They hear the choir. They go to Bethlehem. They see Mary and Joseph and the baby. They they worship him there. And then you know what? What happened? You know what the next thing is? They returned. Praising God and telling people about what they'd seen. But guess what? Sheep wonder. And you need to get back to work. 
wait a minute. <laughs> I just had this life altering experience where an angel showed and then lots of angels showed and then everything happened exactly like the angel said and we worshiped and don't you think it was awkward like what do we do now do we stay do we go what are what what happens now well it was easy to know what was what happened next they're shepherds and the sheep are out in the field and there's work to be done. And guess what? The sun's going to come up tomorrow and the sheep are going to need to be fed and watered and pastured and cared for. We've seen an angel. More than that, we've seen the very face of God. And guess what? The sheep are still here. The job is still here. Life is still here. And sheep still wander. And they stink and they get sick and it's cold out here. And that's life. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at that, to, to see what's happening in this text, because that's there's a real sense in, 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 in the text that we've read today, because what because we know the end of the story. Because we know that this is the chapter three and chapter four are going to unfold for us. The, one of the most beautifully written, one of the most heart-breakingly beautiful love stories of all time. But we're at the end of chapter 2 today. And so what I want us to do today is to recognize the fact that you and I today live at the end of chapter 2. Just like Naomi, just like Ruth. So let's do a quick recap of, of where we are and... Uh, what what uh, has happened here? So the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living, Naomi and Ruth, or the dead, Elimelech and Kilian. Remember, that's uh, Naomi's husband, and, and uh, Kilian is Ruth's husband, Naomi's sons. It was the Lord who stopped the famine that had drove them from Bethlehem the, the, uh, uh, in the first place. It was the Lord who bound Ruth to Naomi in love, right? On their way back, uh, Ruth makes that great commitment. I'll go where you go. I'll be where you be. I'll die where you die. Your God will be my God. It was the Lord who preserved Boaz for Ruth. Ruth did not just happen to come to Boaz's field. The light of God's love has finally broken through bright enough, as we see in this text, for Naomi to see. The Lord is kind. The Lord is kind. He is good to all who take refuge under his wings, as we saw last week. And so, as my friend John Piper says, so let us fall on our faces, bow before the Lord, confess our unworthiness, take refuge under the wings of God, and be astonished at his grace. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Can you see the kindness of God? Is the God you worship kind? Can you see it even as it comes to us through others? Because as we see in this text, what happens to Naomi is as as Ruth comes back and remember Ruth, Ruth brought back not only what she had gleaned, which was a lot, but she brings back even prepared food that was left over from from the feast that Boaz threw for his workers there in the field. And so Naomi is stunned when when Ruth comes back and says, tell me, tell me, where did you go? What happened? How how did you get all of this, all of this food here? Right. And she 
suddenly remarks, you know, blessed be the man who who's been so kind and so good to us and and that we can see now the kindness of God to both the living and the dead. And so really what we have here is is Naomi, when when she says that God has not forgotten the living or the dead, you know, we we immediately think she's talking about Elimelech and and Malan and Killian and and all of that. But in a real sense, that's true. But I think she's also talking about herself because, frankly, as far as her heart was concerned, as far as her soul was concerned, her bitterness ran so deep. Remember, she changed her name from Naomi to bitter, from sweet to bitter. What what can she say? What's true of her? That very morning when Ruth got up and said, hey, I'm going to go glean because we're starving. All Naomi could say, go. She's not even able to go help her herself. Her depression, her sadness, her brokenness is so deep. And so what happens here in this very excited conversation that happens between these two women, what we get to see here is, is Naomi begins to come to life, right? So she, she looks at all this food and she recognizes as, as Ruth describes to her her day and what she did. And isn't that just like women to, at the end of the day, to narrate their day to one another, right? What happened today? If you've got sons, what happened today? Nothing. What happened today? Well, when I got on the bus, Cindy invited me to sit down next to her, and she had the most wonderful, and off we go, and you'll be there 20 minutes later. So, um, But these women are having this conversation about what their day was like and, and how wonderful it is, and Naomi suddenly begins to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, things are starting. I, this, there is a redeemer. Next slide, right? So, so with the advent of this understanding comes an upward surge in her spirit. Suddenly, all of a sudden, what you can see is, is that Naomi is saying, God has not forgotten us. He sees us. He's remembered us. His kindness is real. It is genuine. This is actually happening, right? And so as a result of that, she's able to suddenly have this lift in her spirits. You can see the excitement in her. And she's like, that man is one of our redeemers. He, he has the obligation to care for us. <clears throat> you should stick close to him. This is a great thing. So a lifting from, from the depths of despair, one who was essentially dead now lives. What a great picture. What a wonderful picture of, 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 of how the, the fact that suddenly she sees the possibility that, oh, there is a redeemer here. Oh, God has not forgotten us. God is so kind to us. He's been, he's, 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 she's actually has a sense that as, as opposed to what she had said earlier, maybe he's not against us, but actually maybe he's kind and he sees us and he hears us and he is responding to us and our need and our brokenness and our sadness and the depth of despair that we feel right here, right now. It would be great if the story ended right here. In many ways, it would be awesome because it would be just like us ending Luke two with the shepherds still in the manger and not having to go back to the sheep. Because let me let's let's look a little more in depth at what's going on here. This story is not over. 
Certainly Naomi's come to life and she, she certainly has a spark of life and joy in her that, that we frankly have not seen in this story thus far. But suddenly now things have changed. Things have turned. But really, really, what's happened here? Because what we read in the text is, is that Ruth continued gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Do you know how long that was? Probably around seven or eight weeks. Seven or eight weeks. Now, seven or eight weeks of having to go out every day and follow behind the gleaners and pick up what they dropped and gather it up because that's all you're going to have to eat today. Seven weeks of bending over. They didn't have those little garden carts, you know, that you sit in and you scoot along the ground with, whatever. Ruth is going out there every day and doing this. Seven weeks. And Ruth is gleaning in a world where her mother-in-law says to her this. It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women Lest in another field you be assaulted. This God who sees them and redeems them and is at work and suddenly she can have this sense that, that's, that, that, that maybe, just maybe God has not forgotten him and that, that just maybe, just maybe God has some kindness and some gentleness and some care in him. And yet, this is the world they still live in. And we read at the end of this text that she lived with her mother-in-law, which really is not a good word for that. It means that she settled down with her mother-in-law. This was life, gleaning, scratching out whatever they could get to eat. Seven weeks, eight weeks. Seven weeks, eight weeks. Now, now, there's plenty to eat. Uh, apparently, uh, Boaz and his grace and his mercy, we just have this one day that's recorded for us here in chapter 2 about what it was like. But, but he takes special care of Ruth and he sees to it that there's plenty for her to glean and there's plenty left over at his table for her to take home. But let's, let's think about this for a second. The future is still uncertain. The future is still uncertain. It's really clouded. And, and what's going hap- what, what's, what's to happen next? I mean, does, does Boaz have um, a profit-sharing plan? Because what are we going to do for food when the harvest is over? And And... What are these widows, how, how are they going to make it? You know, our deacons uh, do some of the most important ministry that this church does. And they care for people in need. And often the question, and it's a good question, it's an appropriate question, it's a merciful question. When folks come to us in dire need, what we will often say to them is, how can we get you in a situation that is sustainable? This is not sustainable, honestly, right? 
There's plenty of food to glean while there's the harvest. And maybe, you know, somebody should sit down with uh, Ruth and Naomi and say, quit eating so much (laughs) and set some aside because the harvest is going to be over and you're going to be on your own. How are you going to make it? Ruth still has to go out there every day and work really, really hard. They're still widows. Do you not think every day that they get up that they're not that they and they go about their day that they're not reminded that at one point in time they were married and had all sorts of prospects and that Naomi had two sons and a husband so they still have to rely upon this gleaning and and the harvest will be done and then what Now maybe you don't think about life like that maybe you're so full of faith and you're so so certain of things that it never crosses your mind that, huh, you know, um, yeah. So it's really unclear what will happen next. There's a Redeemer who's been kind. There's a God who is demonstrating that he hasn't forgotten them in his kindness, and yet, Ruth gleans. Ruth's a widow. Naomi, though hopeful, is still a widow. Because you see, this small passage of Scripture is an outline of life. A life for the believer, and it is so appropriate for Advent. Right? Because, Because the fact of the matter is, we are not unlike that. Maybe, just maybe, you have heard and you have believed that God has not forgotten you, that in his kindness and in his tender mercy, he has remembered his promises to his people, and that, yes, we celebrate the coming of a Redeemer, and, yes, we have seen and we have heard and we believe, and yet we hurt, and yet we have to glean, and yet we live in a world where, unlike Ruth, there's violence and difficulty, and pain, and challenge, and uncertainty about where the next day's harvest or meal might come from. Next slide. We sing every year at Christmas, the hopes and fears of all the years are met uh, in thee tonight, right? Uh, Isn't it funny how uh, we play those two things together, hope and fear, uh, because I think there is certainly an interplay of that. And O Holy Night tells us that there's a thrill of hope and the weary world rejoices, right? So we have to say, and this is the great news for us today, and the great, the great promise that this gospel has for us is that things have shifted dramatically for Naomi internally. There is no doubt about that. This woman who was dried up and bitter and angry and upset suddenly has come to the point where she sees and she is reminded that there's a God who in his committed mercy and in his kindness is providing a redeemer for her. And yet she's still a widow and yet her daughter-in-law still must glean. And you see, what we, what we have to see about this is, and that's why I ask you the question this morning, was not, do you still have hope? Because to demonstrate, to, to gin up hope without a certain conviction and sight 
of the mercy and the kindness of our God is a fruitless exercise. Because, my friends, the fact is, Naomi cannot be told to have hope until she sees that God has remembered her, until she sees that God is redeeming her, until she sees and believes that there is a God who is for her, who loves her, and who will provide for her. I was so convicted this week as I was just sinking deeper and deeper into a dark place and so discouraged, so bummed, so upset about so many things that I had to say to myself, and I, 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 say, I, I, I say this often, and um, I, I, I don't say Steve, I say soul. <laughs> so what is wrong with you? You act and believe as if there is no God. You act and believe that as if there is a God who does not care one whit about you and is slow in keeping his promises and, in fact, might even be a liar. Because if he was as good as he says he is, you wouldn't feel this way. All right? But what we see here is that Naomi, though her circumstances, her life has not changed externally, she now sees, and the God has been good to her to give her eyes to see that he provides a redeemer, that he provides in his kindness and in his gentleness and in his mercy. He sees her, she is dear to him, and he is for her. And so as she sees that, what happens to her is she begins to believe and think about the possibility that, that, this, that, that this Lord will indeed follow through and continue to be kind to her and that he will redeem her. You see, the relationship between kindness and the committed love of our God as we see and as we preach and as we hold out the hope of this Jesus Christ who entered into our world. And, and as we've sung, tasted our sadness, tasted our tears and overcame those for us. As we see that, what does that generate in me? That generates in me not just a stiff upper lip, but the fact is that this God is for me. And if he is for me, I can hope. And the hope that I have is not that somehow or other Things are suddenly going to get better, but I have hope because I have a redeemer. I have hope because my God hears me. I have hope because my God sees me. And I have hope because this God acts on my behalf and does not even allow my own cold bitterness and unbelief and anger to keep him from caring for me. Next slide. So that's why I ask you today wherever you are, and in whatever circumstance you find yourself, can we see the kindness of God? Because if you can't, then there is no hope, really. Uh, there's no reason for hope. Um. One of the things that I think is so profound about Advent is the opportunity I have 
to tell you that God is kind and that we have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ, even while I know many of you suffer and struggle. Loneliness, heartbreak, anger, bitterness, sickness, grief. And so, rather than say to you what would be the tempting thing to say is, there, there, everything will be all right. And pat you on the back and move on. What this text tells us is, there's a Redeemer who came to this planet precisely because of its brokenness and its darkness and its bitterness. And he overcame it by his life, death, and resurrection. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things that... Um, uh, one of my favorite passages in all of literature is this passage right here. I've never uh, used it in a sermon before because I think it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's profoundly hard to understand what the heck she's talking about in this passage. And so a fundamental rule of preaching is never use something in a sermon that you have to explain because if you have to explain, it's not any good, right? But this is so good. I'm going to explain it. <laughs> so my homiletics professors right now are thinking we should have flunked that boy. So this is uh, John Ames at the end of his life. He's, uh, he grew up in the town of Gilead, Iowa. He is a congregational pastor. He was married young, uh, and his wife and child died. And he spent decades in loneliness and darkness and despair, really, as he ministered to this congregation and lived in this town that, frankly, is dying. Uh, and the town and he have a lot in common. They're both dying. Um, late in life, a, a former prostitute comes out of the rain into the back of his church. And the only reason why she came into his church was not because she was looking for God, but because it was raining and she needed to get dry. And he sees her, and they fall in love. And they get married, and she has a baby. And so at the end of his life, he writes this book as a testimony to his son because he knows he has heart failure that he'll never see his son grow up. And so this is what he says about Gilead, the town that's dying. He says, this whole town does look like whatever hope becomes after it begins to weary a little, then weary a little more. <laughs> Which uh, I know, uh, I can't define that exactly, but there are times when I stand up here on Sunday mornings and I see it. But hope deferred, it's still hope. I love this town. How can you love that town? Well, he loves it. And I think sometimes of going into the ground, he's not talking about mining here, he's talking about dying and being buried 
And he says, I, I think sometimes of going into the ground here, here, and this place that's dying, as a last wild gesture of love. I told you it's hard to figure out. Uh, I too will smolder away the time until the great and general incandescence. That means until the great light shines and the resurrection. Weird, I know. Let me tell you why this is so great. Could it be that one of the, the, the greatest gesture of love you could leave your loved ones is when they put you in the ground with the knowledge that you too will smolder away just like much in this world until you don't and you're raised again because there is a Redeemer. What would it look like to live in a world that is dying, waiting for its full redemption? And in fact, our best testimony might be our own burial with the recognition that that's not it, but that God might raise us from the dead. A wild gesture of love to a place that is dying that there will be a day when light will dawn and life will spring forth eternal. And all that is broken, all that is sad, all that is dark, all that is bitter, all that is hidden and shameful will be redeemed. Two quick stories. When I was 18 years old... um, this stands out as one of my most profound memories of my teenage years. We, uh, our family always gathered at the top of a mountain outside of Asheville, North Carolina, our extended family, the Shelby family, for a family reunion. Really dumb, really dumb for a whole host of reasons. It was up about 4,000, 5,000 feet, so it was always in the clouds. You know, you think, oh, we're in the mountains. We're going to see a great view. Never. All I ever remember about it is being damp and kind of cold, actually, for August. Um, and uh, we would gather on Sunday, sing a hymn, pray, and eat. That was our, our thing. And uh, um, just to give you an idea of how my family is, we give awards out at our family reunion. Okay? Now, but they're not the kind of awards that you, you tend to think about. Our awards are awards like uh, oldest man, oldest woman, uh, and because it was such a hard drive to get to, oldest car. Because if you could get a car up there, it was quite an accomplishment. Uh, youngest baby, we actually won that uh, one time. Uh, when I was 18, we gathered there, we prayed. And as soon as we finished praying, my, one of my dad's older sisters, my Aunt Pauline, collapsed. And we had to get her off the mountain. And it was difficult. We got her to the hospital, and she died the next day. And so we gathered a day or two later as family, and we grieved together, and we mourned together, and we went and we worshiped the Lord together. And for the first time in my life, I think I really experienced hope. Because my aunt knew Jesus, and she had a vibrant faith. And I knew probably for the first time in my life that um, 
what heaven is, is a place where you never say goodbye, but only hello. And I knew that I would see her someday and say hello to her. And we gathered and we buried her and we went back to my uncle's house and we had a big meal because it was a big southern church and they were loving us with, you know, the pies and the chicken and all the, all the stuff that you do at these times. And we were actually laughing a little bit, experiencing some joy and experiencing some fellowship. And, and I thought this, I remember as an 18 year old thinking, well, this must be a glimpse of the glory of God. And then the phone rang and it was the neighbor. While we had been at the funeral, uh, my uncle's herd of cattle, somewhere between 100 and 150, had broken the fence down, and now they were out standing in the highway. And so we got out of our coats and ties and put on our work clothes and went out to get the cows. And I'm out there in the middle of Highway 70, Knoxville, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, I mean, thinking, we're going to be on the news. And just bitter, angry. And I said to my dad, I'm like, what is up with God? What is going on? Can't can't Uncle Ed catch a break? His wife just died, and now all of his stupid cattle are scattered all over creation, and we got to run them back up, and then we got to fix the fence. And so my dad, you know, um, gift so gentle and his pastoral advice to his son uh, says to me, uh, God is good. You'll see your aunt again. And let me remind you, it's a good thing to have 150 head of cattle. That's a blessing. So shut up and get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Don't ever say shut up, kids. That's a bad word. <laughs> Papaw can say that because he's earned the right. You haven't earned the right yet, okay? Um, and so what I think about that is, I think, you know, the, the fact is, what difference could it make for you today in an admittedly broken world with a broken life and a broken heart that you have a Redeemer who will raise you from the dead? What difference would that make for how you live your life today? We're going to take communion in a little bit. And one of the things that we will do when we take communion is you'll come up front uh, and you will have the opportunity to receive from the hand of uh, your elders um, the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. And you will hear from their, their mouths the glorious gospel of this wondrous God who sees you, who is kind to you, who redeems you. And if you come over here to this side of the stage, you'll receive it from a godly elder with a cane sitting on a stool who will tell you the gospel and hand you the body and blood of Jesus Christ while he has to sit on a stool. Now, he said to me a few months ago, he's like, I can't serve communion anymore because I can't stand up. 
Well, I'm not having that. Because what more profound witness of the nature of the gospel than to hold out the hope of a redeemer while you have to sit on a stool? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's use this prayer of confession that's printed uh, in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Lord Jesus Christ, sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my affections, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive. Yet your compassions yearn over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my justice. Your incarnation unites God and man, and in man crushes the serpent's head. Let me walk in humility, cleansed in your blood, tender of conscience, living in triumph over the world, the flesh and the devil, as an heir of your salvation. Through your blessed name, amen.